Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Well, good morning. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see you this morning. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, Earlier this week, a lot of us started a journey together reading through this big picture of the Bible using the reading plan that uh, Elizabeth referred to earlier, this F260 plan. I just want you to know it's not too late to jump on board. And so if you're interested in doing that, uh, we got some more journals in the lobby. Uh, Here's what we uh, believe uh, the habit of interacting with God's Word is more important uh, than making sure that you're up to date with everything. Uh, And so we would encourage you, uh, just if if you're starting this journey with us, just grab, start with week two. Uh, On Monday, it's just five readings a week. I don't feel like you got to catch up and read everything that we've already read. If you want to, that's great. Overachiever, you know, like five gold stars, good for you. Uh, But that's not the standard. Uh, The standard is just over time, we want to develop the habit of engaging with God's Word. Sound good? Good. Well, we're going to start this morning uh, in Genesis chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. Over the Christmas break, uh, our our family went to the movies, which is a rare occurrence these days, I think, for most of us. When the movies just come to us, we just stream it, right? Right right into our homes. Uh, But we went to the movies and we saw Wonka. Anybody seen Wonka yet? Okay, like four, four people, uh, so blockbuster, I guess, I don't know. Um, but Wonka is the origin story of the strange yet wonderful character of Willy Wonka. Uh, and then as a follow-up, we watched the other two movies, and um, that Johnny Depp one's just weird, man. Like, it's not good, it's just weird. If you hated that one, you're going to love this new one, all right? But origin stories are important, right? We love a good origin story. We're fascinated by them. We want to know how Willy Wonka came to be Willy Wonka. We want to know his backstory. We want to know how Peter Parker became Spider-Man. We want to know what happened in Batman's life that he started fighting crime. We want to know how the Joker became the Joker. It's not enough for us just to know that Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader. We want to know how. And just an aside, I know this might be unpopular with some of you. I don't know how you mess up Darth Vader's origin story, but they succeeded over the course of three entire movies. We want to know the answer to the question, how did it all begin? And for many of us, we want to know that personally as well. We want to know where we came from, our family history. We want to do the DNA test and track down our own origin story. Well, what we find in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the origin story of God's world and God's people. And that's where we're going to pick up. But I do need to set a little context for you. Most people, most scholars believe that the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are written by Moses. I agree with them because in the New Testament, Jesus agrees with them. And Jesus identifies the first five books as the books of Moses. And so Genesis is written by Moses. Now, you remember who Moses is, right? So Moses, who was a Hebrew living in Egypt, who narrowly escaped death when Pharaoh ordered the extermination of all the firstborn sons of the Hebrews, right? 
Moses who then met God at the burning bush, Moses whom God called to lead his people out of Egypt into the promised land, Moses who's standing on the edge of the Red Sea when it parts, this is the guy who authors this book. And that's important because this book is written in a particular context. Now, you remember, I hope, what we believe here about the Bible. The Bible is God's word, that God, by his spirit, inspired men to write down his very words. And so when we interact with the Bible, when we read it, we're reading God's word to us. The Bible is also, at the same time, God's word delivered to us through human personalities in a particular place, in a particular time, in a particular context. And so not only is this God's spirit inspiring Moses to write down this account for us, but the purpose of this account is to an audience, a particular audience, and that audience is a newly rescued people who've been delivered from slavery in Egypt to be God's people in a new place, in a new land. And so when you look at Genesis through that viewpoint, you start to see, oh, this is an origin story for a group of people who have some very basic questions. Who is this God who's rescued us? How is he different from the gods of Egypt that we've been exposed to? Where did the world come from? We've heard tales of our time in Egypt. Is this what we believe? And who are we? And so this account is intended to shape the identity of God's people. Answer the questions, what is the story of our people? Why do we exist and do we have a purpose? So just like every origin story has a beginning, so does ours. We find it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You can look there. Simply, the scripture starts with one sentence and one statement that's loaded with all sorts of meaning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's an interesting start. It doesn't start with God's people. It starts with God himself. And what we find in this account is that God is the main character of this origin story. Let me, let me show you this on the screen. I know you're not going to be able to read this, right? But can you see? Yeah, see this? You can't read it, right? That's okay. But you see all the circles? All of those things that I've circled in this text are something important that's repeated all the way through chapter 1. It's that God is the subject and God acts. So we see Verse 1, 21, 27, God creates. We see verse 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, and 29 that God speaks. We see in verse 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, uh, 25, and 31 that God sees. We see in verse 4 that God separates. We see in verses 5, 8, and 10 that God calls. We see in verses 7, 16, and 25 that it's God who makes. We see in verse 17 that God sets. We see in uh, 22 and on into chapter 2 that God blesses. God God finishes his work, and then in chapter 2, we see that God rests. Do you know what we don't see? We don't see anyone else doing anything else. Because the main character of the scriptures is the main character of Genesis 1 and 2, and that main character is God. God is the one who 
acts to kick off this origin story of the world and everything that it contains. And we learn a few things about God's character in that. One, that God is one God. There's not a sky God, a sea God, a God of the harvest, or a sun God. But for the people of Israel, the Hebrews leaving Egypt, which is a polytheistic culture, what they learn from this account right from the jump, from verse 1, is in the beginning, God, singular one. And that everything that was made was made by him. There are not likewise a multitude of gods who rule over all different regions and all different people, but all people originate from one God who creates. And this one God rules supremely over all things. This God is eternal. He has always existed. He has no beginning and no end. Moses writes a psalm, Psalm 90. And Moses says that in Psalm 90, verse 2, he says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And this God that we see in this text is powerful. He speaks the world into existence, which is the power of his word. And so there is, right in verse 1, this one God who is the eternal creator of all things, who is not created, and who exists as a supreme ruler over all of his creation. There's a few implications already for us. What would you think if you went to go see Wonka over your Christmas break? And in the first several minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour into the movie, you had not yet met Willy Wonka. You're like, something's up here. This is weird. Who's this origin story actually about? Now think about for God's people hearing this story, the implication for them. A clear reminder, hey, I'm telling you your origin story, but you're actually not the main character of this story. This story isn't ultimately about you. So for the Hebrew people hearing this story, it is a reminder of humility. You're not the main character of your own story. But also, can you hear even the significance in it? You're actually a part of something much, much, much bigger, much grander, much more magnificent than just delivery out of slavery in Egypt. A much bigger story. Now think about the implication for us. I think the idea here is that understanding who God is is crucial to us understanding who we are. Our own origin story. Your origin story of your life doesn't go back to your birth or your family or your upbringing or that terrible experience in the seventh grade. It doesn't just go back to when you were fired from your job, wrongly accused of something. But it originates with God himself as the main character of all of history, of the scripture, of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and the main character of our lives currently. So making sense of your life, making sense of my life, the claim of the Hebrew scriptures is it starts actually with understanding who God is first. And secondly, we notice this, God creates a good world. 
Genesis 1, again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth is just a phrase of saying everything that is created, everything that exists, God made all of it start to finish. And God creates, we find, out of nothing. There's no pre-existing matter, only God. There's no chemicals, no nitrogen floating in space. There's actually no space. There's no stars. It's just God. And he creates everything that is out of nothing. Now, I love pizza. You guys love pizza? Uh, occasionally as a family, we've made pizza, right? Have you guys tried this experiment? Um, when your, our kids were really little, it was always like, this is dicey. We're going to see how this goes, right? But what we did is we would open up the pre-made dough because we're not that adventurous, right? And we'd get the sauce and we would spread it on there and then some cheese and some toppings, right? And we made pizza. But we didn't make pizza out of nothing. We made a pizza, we made pizza out of something, right? We started with ingredients. The claim of the scriptures isn't that God made the world like you and I would make a pizza. The claim is that God made the world out of nothing. Verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So evidently what happens is God creates all things, the heavens and the earth, but he is yet to form or shape his world. And the world is described as being what? Without form and void. There's stuff there, but it's not inhabitable for his people yet. So there's a problem. The world is formless. And so if you look at the text, we're not going to go through every part, but God spends three days forming the world, giving it a structure and a shape. Light separates the light from the darkness, earth, water, basic vegetation. He gives it a shape or structure. Then the second problem is that it's void or that it's not full of stuff that God wants to fill it with. And so what he does over the next three days is now the form or shape that he's given to his world, he fills it. And he fills it with all sorts of good stuff, right? Birds, creatures in the sea, animals, and people. And so God takes this world and fills it, forms it into the world that he longs for it to be all by his spoken word. What's the end result? The end result we could see repeated again in the text, verse 9, 12, 18, 21, and 25. After every day of creation, God stops and it says he saw that it was good. That God created not just something out of nothing, but he creates a good something. He creates beauty out of chaos, order out of formlessness, and life out of what was a void. And so we see then a good God who creates a good world. Now, this likewise would have been countercultural for the Hebrews in their world. This description of the creation of the world is vastly different from, again, the gods of Egypt. There is not a particular God who created the sea or another God over the sky or another God who created all the vegetation and agriculture and another God who sends the rain. There is one God who is good, who created everything in a good world. So think about all the questions that this already is starting to answer for them. Who is this God who can part the Red Sea? Well, the creator of the seas. 
Who is this God that can send darkness over all of Egypt and the plagues? The God who has dominion or sovereignty over light and dark. Who is the God who sent locusts and frogs again to Egypt? The one who created all things. Do you see how this is putting together the story for them based on the experiences that they've just had? And in this good world, God's creation is distinct yet dependent on him. And this is what's countercultural for us. In fact, Acts 17, verse 24 and 25 uh, articulates this view. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself, see, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This summation of Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us again something about God. God as the creator is distinct from his creation. He is not the same thing as his creation. The Bible word we use for this is transcendent. That God is distinct or different in nature from what he has created. This is countercultural for us because we live in a culture that increasingly is embracing popular versions of something called pantheism, which believes that God is in all things. A uh, clear way to see this is Oprahisms, right? That God is in you, that you have a divine spark inside of you, that we can see God, not just his handiwork in creation, but God himself is a part of his creation. And the author of Genesis is saying, no, 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 that's not it. That's not what we believe. We believe that God created the world, but he himself is distinct or different from his creation. Yet, his creation is dependent on him. Uh, the big churchy word we use for this is eminent. That God is operating in his world. That he has not, like some of our founding fathers of the United States believed as DS, that God created the world and then turned it loose to its own devices. But God is still active and present and involved in his world. That we are not in God's created world like a newborn baby. They came home from the hospital, and mom and dad was like, best of luck to you, right? We rented you your own place. We got you a phone. Uber Eats is a great app. You just figure it out and take care of yourself. I am out. That's not the picture of the world that we get from the creation account. That God is distinct from his creation and yet still involved. So God, the main character of the story, creates a good world and then... It gets even better if you're taking notes. God creates good people to represent him in his good world. Skip down to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so when we people enter the story, we enter as creations of God, the creator, who created us how is in his image. What does that phrase in his image means? I think this is one of the most significant phrases in all the scripture. It means that people, men and women, please notice that from the text, are created by God in his image, a unique from the rest of his creation. The people are created to resemble God in a way. 
The word image or the word likeness here, both in Hebrew carry the idea of similar but not identical. So this does not mean that we are gods. It means that we resemble God in some way. God didn't make little gods. He made people. But people are similar to God in the way that we uh, can reason, morality, our capacity for language, relationships, love, commitment, creativity, self-expression, all sorts of ways we resemble God. We're unique. Also, he created us in his image as representatives. The word image most often is used in the scripture to describe an idol. In other words, to describe a piece of wood or stone that has been carved into an image that's supposed to represent a God. Here in this text, it's not saying that we're carving idols, but that we are in God's image, meaning representatives of him here on his earth. And we can disagree, and a lot of people do about all the particulars of this, but, but created in the image of God means that people represent God to the rest of his world. In verse 28, God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here's what just happened in creation. These image bearers are then invited to share in what God does. What did God do? He created. And so what does he say to his people? Go create. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. What does God do in creation? He has authority over it. He says, hey, here's a little bit of authority for you too, to represent me here in my world. And then also we resemble God, we represent God, and we have a relationship with God. Chapter 2, verse 7, there's a shift that happens in the language. Uh, if you look at verse 7, you can see this. It says, then the Lord God. Do you see that phrase, the Lord God? Anytime in your English version of the Bible, you see the word Lord with all capital letters, L-O-R-D. That is a translation of the word Yahweh, right? Does that make sense? You guys see that? Everybody can see that? Yeah. And so now this language shifts. Why? Why does Moses shift the language of Genesis right here? We don't see the Lord God the rest of the time. We only see it at the beginning of chapter 2. Because Yahweh is God's name that he tells people whom he is entering into a covenant relationship with. This is how he introduces himself to Abraham. We're going to find that in a couple of weeks. This is how he talks to, about himself to Moses. Why? Because he's saying like, hey, now you know me relationally. And so in order to signify that people were created to have a relationship with God, the author of Genesis is like, oh, hey, we want to make sure we're using this name. Should be a signal. Something's changed. And then not only that, but if we fast forward a little bit to Genesis chapter 5, it's made explicitly clear. Verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam, it says. When God created man, he made him in, his, in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. Does that sound similar? All right, check, check out verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. What does the writer of Genesis want you to know? That that being made in the image of God has a relational or familial component. That we were created as image bearers to know God in a relationship just like a father and a son. 
So what does God think of these image bearers then? We find this back in chapter 1 and verse 31. God, God saw everything that he had made, surveys the whole thing, including man, and behold, it was what? Very good. It was evening and it was morning on the sixth day. Think about how powerful this would have been for the original audience. That a good God made a good world and then filled it with good people. Made in his image. Clearly saying, you are not slaves. You're image bearers. You're not second class citizens. You're sons and daughters. Your value is not tied to your productivity. I'm not doing an assessment on the number of bricks that you made for Pharaoh after this. Your value is tied that I know you and created you. Your dignity isn't dependent on your social uh, position. You are not forgotten. You are not a pawn in the cosmos. You were intentionally created by God in order to represent him and relate to him here in his world. And those implications are implications for us as well. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, please don't miss this. You are not an accident. You are not defined by your job. You are not defined by your family background. The most important thing about you is not your productivity. Your value is not found in what you can produce, accumulate, or earn. You're not forgotten. You're not a pawn in some big cosmos that you have no idea what's going on around you. And your dignity is not dependent on your social position. You are an image bearer created by God to resemble him, to represent him, to reflect his glory, and to be in a relationship with him. Your life has purpose and meaning apart from what you do. It rests clearly in who you are who God created you to be. So you have intrinsic worth and value. You have purpose. You are loved. And you, regardless of what you may have done in your past, have an unbelievable capacity to reflect the goodness of God in your life. Not only that, but every person you've ever met in your entire life is the same. Everybody you'll interact with this afternoon, at lunch, when you go back to work, on Monday, back to school, back at the dorm, apartment, in the cul-de-sac, is an image bearer created with intrinsic worth and value, dignity apart from what they can accomplish or where they stand on the social ladder. Massive implications for our lives right out of the first chapter of Genesis. The last thing I want to point out, and this one's quick, but we're going to need this later. God creates a good place to dwell with his good people. Chapter 2, verse 8 says that God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. What we find in the rest of chapter 2 is, guess who hangs out in this place called the garden? God. And there is a place where God dwells with his people. That God creates a link between his dwelling place in the heavens and our dwelling place on earth, this place called the garden. And in that place where these two worlds are linked, God 
dwells, walks with his people, knows his people, has a relationship with his people. Now, there's a problem. And the problem is that none of this stuff is our experience, right? This is not the sort of world that we experience. We're not surrounded by good people in a good world. We don't have a good place in a garden where we dwell with a good God. We're going to dive into why that is the case next week when we see how the wheels come off and how good people are broken and a good world is shattered and people are exiled from this good place and are relationally separated from their good God. But today I want you to know that the rest of the story of the scripture is about how God plans on restoring Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The, The experiential gap that you and I have in our own lives between what we experience and what's described in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The entire rest of the story of Scripture is an explanation of how God plans on closing that gap. To create a people who are good again, who resemble Him, who represent Him, and are functioning in a relationship with Him. The rest of Scripture is a story about a world that God is going to restore to goodness, full of wonder, and joy, but suffering and sorrow is absent. That God is, in the story of Scripture, restoring a new good place where he will dwell again with his people, restoring them into a relationship with himself. That's where we're going. 2024, this is where we're headed. And that entire plan for God to restore Genesis 1 and 2 centers around one person. His name is Jesus. Paul gives us a hint of this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. It says, for by him, he's talking about Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is talking about Jesus. And he says, at the creation of the world, guess who's present, actively involved, engaged in creation? It's Jesus. And guess who this creation, this entire story, Genesis 1 and 2, guess who it's actually about? It's about Jesus. And then later in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, he just gives us this simple statement that you have heard before. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. That God, through the scripture, is telling us about his plan to renew or return or set things right in our world. A good world, good people, in a good place. And that entire plan centers on Jesus. And that the way for restoration for us the way out of the brokenness caused by sin that we're going to see next week. The way that God is going to recreate this world at the end of all time. The way that he's going to restore this good place. In Revelation, we find out it's a garden city. It all centers around one person, Jesus. So what does this mean for us today? Just a couple of quick things. First, I think this story should produce in us Humility. It is a humbling thing to realize you are not the main character of your own story. I don't know about you, but I was a kid. 
We had a basketball goal in the driveway. Anybody have a basketball goal in the driveway? Did you guys ever do this? I would pretend like I was on the Atlanta Hawks. And I was the shooting guard for the Atlanta Hawks. And I was getting the ball late in the game. And as the clock is ticking down, my team is depending on me to score the winning goal. Right? Oh, five, four, crossover dribble. Three, two, one, let it fly. And it would clank off the rim. I'd be like, good thing this is imaginary because I can just do it again. You know what I mean? But in that moment, I'm thinking of all the crowds cheering for me. The glory and fame do my name. But Genesis is a reminder, this is not about us. We're not the main character of all of history. Our very lives don't revolve around us. And that should produce humility. The second thing, though, I think it should produce in us joy. Do you see what God does? He creates something, steps back, looks at it, and says, this is good. God delights in his good creation. And you and I, in response to Genesis 1 and 2, can delight in what God does. Whether that's the created world or coffee with a great friend, we can take great joy in those things. We can step back and go, man, this is good. (laughs) There's some good stuff in this world, right? This is good. Then the final response for us, I think, is to place our faith in or trust Christ. That we don't get back to the goodness of God's world. And we don't get restored to the people we were intended to be. Rightly resembling, representing, in relationship with God. Without Jesus. So the invitation is not just to humble yourself and not just to take joy. The invitation is for all of us, whether we've already believed and trusted in Jesus or have yet to believe and trust in Jesus, to come to a place where we go, the hope of restoration in the world and the hope of restoration in my life comes back to Jesus. And so are we today going to again renew our faith in Christ? remind ourselves that we're trusting Jesus to set things right, and then maybe for some of us, for the first time, trusting Christ to save us. And go, I I don't know, but I don't look like this. And my world doesn't look like this. And my place doesn't look like this. But I'm going to trust that Christ can bring reconciliation. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.